Good morning, Redeemer King. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, we're going to be back in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 11. So I'm going to speak on that for about 20, 25 minutes, and then we're going to meet together for communion over Zoom, and uh, Jim McGlade will take us through that. So let's just quickly recap on uh, where we've got to. Uh, so in chapter 1, Paul urged the Philippians to live lives worthy of the gospel, uh, to stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, and then uh, in chapter 2, uh, he, he exhorts them to um, practice humility. This is the key quality. So it's not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So it's mainly exhortation up until now. But as we come to chapter three, there's a bit of a, a change in, in tone and focus. Uh, and and there's, there's more of an element of warning. Uh, and we'll come to that. Uh, so it's a new section, really, uh, in Philippians chapter three. And he starts off by, by talking about joy. <clears throat> now, Philippians is often called the letter of joy because there are a number of references to it. And so chapter three begins, uh, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So there's a call to joy uh, here at the start of chapter three. Uh, now, the Greek language is very expressive. Uh, the grammar tells us a lot um, through through just through its rules. Um, so this simple command, rejoice in the Lord, you can sort of pick it apart um, uh, and we can say a number of things about it. Firstly, it's in the present tense. So it's something we are to keep on doing. Um, it's an imperative. That is, it addresses the will. It calls on us to do something. Um, it's in the active voice. That means we are to take charge of the action. It's not something that happens to us. It's something we need to do. And it's a second person plural. That is, it's for for everyone. Um, but most importantly, this joy, notice, is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It can't be found anywhere else. See, I, I don't think the world really understands joy. It understands happiness, but that's not the same thing. Happiness is based on happenstance, on favourable circumstances, um, whereas joy is not dependent on circumstances. Uh, Psalm 16:11 links joy to knowing the Lord. It says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Uh, and in Galatians 5, Paul says joy is a fruit of the spirit. So it's something that God gives. It, it, it's his gift to us. And, and yet it's something we pursue. Although we don't pursue joy, we pursue Christ. And if we pursue Christ, then we find joy as a byproduct. So there's a call to joy. But what does Paul mean there in verse one when he says this is a safeguard for you? Now, most the commentators think that he's referring to what he's about to say about uh, the false teaching, because it is false teaching that will separate them from their joy in Christ. And that's why Paul feels that he's got to address this danger. And so the call to joy is then followed by a threat to joy. Now, Paul's responsibility uh, and the response with all leaders is to protect the church uh, from uh, false teaching, 
from false ideas and, and from uh, harmful people as well. So the threat to joy. Uh, verse two says, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, those evildoers. So who is he talking about? Who are these people? Well, it's a group of people known as the Judaizers. They were basically uh, Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentile believers, in other words, non-Jews, had to adopt Jewish religious practices. The main one being circumcision. Circumcision was something that marked the Jews out culturally as a distinctive people. Um, and so th this group of Judaizers, they dogged Paul throughout his ministry. They followed him everywhere, trying to impose these Jewish rules on Gentile converts. And that's why Paul took it so seriously. Uh, see, Paul would go and preach the gospel. He'd tell people about what Christ had done for them um, and how they could be set free uh, from sin. All they had to do was believe and to receive it as a gift by faith. And then Paul would move on and then these Judaizers would, would come in with their sharp knives saying, no, it's not enough just to believe. You have to be circumcised too. You've got to keep the law of Moses. Uh, you've basically got to become Jewish culturally. And so Paul doesn't hold back. He calls them dogs. Now, of course, dogs were unclean animals as, as far as Jews were concerned. So that was a real insult. He calls them evildoers. The, the Jews took pride in their law keeping. Uh, but here Paul is saying they're basically lawbreakers. And he says they're mutilators of the flesh. Now, flesh mutilation is was a feature of pagan religion. People would often cut themselves as a, as a sign of devotion. Uh, Paul is saying that the, the Judaizers are no different. And so the Philippians are to watch out, literally be on the lookout uh, for this false teaching, which will rob them of their joy. And well, you think, well, what's that got to do with, with us today uh, in 2021? Well, I think the warning still applies. I mean, the, the issue might not be circumcision. Um, obviously, this was an issue in a Jewish context. But anything that says we must observe religious rules or practices is false teaching and, and can rob us of our joy in Christ. So in a Christian context, for example, some might teach that baptism is essential for salvation. You can't go to heaven unless you're baptised. Uh, or others will say church attendance. You know, you've got to go to church or you won't be accepted by God or you've got to do good works. Now, of course, all these things are commanded. They're good things. Being baptised, going to church, doing good works. But they are responses to salvation. It's because Jesus died on the cross and, and finished his work that I get baptised, that I join a church, that I seek to live a life worthy of the gospel. None of those things actually saves me. It's Christ's death alone that saves. So this is the threat to joy. <clears throat> and then he goes on. Uh, to talk about the key to joy 
And the key is understanding who you are, understanding your true identity in Christ. Verse three, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Here are the marks of true believers. So he's basically saying that you don't need to be circumcised physically because it's already happened spiritually. Something has happened in your heart. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, physical circumcision was only a sign. It was pointing to something else, the circumcision of the heart. And only one thing can pierce the hard heart, and that's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. So Paul is basically saying that Christians have experienced internally um, what circumcision was the outward sign of. It's a maybe a slightly complicated point, but uh, Colossians 2, 10 to 14 also talks about the circumcision of the heart. Uh, it's a spiritual thing that God does in us. Um, then secondly, he says true believers are those who serve God by his spirit. Um, and the word for serve there is is a word that's often translated as worship. So saying we worship God uh, by the spirit, but worship there is our service empowered by the spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. That's another distinguishing mark. Uh, thirdly, he says we boast in Christ Jesus. That is, we glory in him. It's all about Jesus. And then finally, we put no confidence in the flesh. And when the New Testament talks about the flesh, uh, it means the sinful nature, not the physical body. The body is good, um, but the sinful nature is, is the problem. But, so what this means is that we put no confidence in trying to earn our salvation. So here we have then uh, the call to joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Um, the threat to joy, these uh, the false teaching that says you need to add to your faith. And then the key to joy is to understand who we are, that God has has done a finished work in our lives um, because of Jesus died on the cross. So when you think about what Paul has just said here, it's quite staggering when when you consider his background. And, and that's what Paul goes on to talk about here. Basically, what you have from verses four to ten is Paul's testimony. Uh, he talks about his life B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after deliverance. So what was Paul like before Christ or before his conversion? Uh, verses four to six. And, and he lists a number of things here that um, most Jews would have regarded as very impressive. And they're all to do with either his heritage or his performance. So firstly, there are four things to do with his heritage. So he had an impressive beginning. It says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, that was just a requirement of the Jewish covenant. Um, so he followed the, the expectation on that. He had an impressive nationality. He was of the people of Israel. Israel was God's chosen nation. No other nation had God's laws. No other nation had been called into a covenant with God. To be a member of Israel was to inherit a great privilege. He had an impressive lineage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Now, Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob, and the tribe that descended from him was one of the elite tribes. There were two elite tribes in Israel. There was Judah and Benjamin. If you were from one of those tribes, you know, you were the elite. And uh, so Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. This was the tribe that remained loyal to David. Um, and there's always had a descendant of David on the throne. Jerusalem was in the territory of Benjamin. It was there that the temple was built. So it had a lot going for it. Uh, an impressive lineage. Uh, then he had an impressive upbringing. <clears throat> he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of Hebrew parents, raised in Hebrew tradition uh, and skilled in the Hebrew language. So here is Paul's heritage, second to none. We're meant to be impressed. Um, and then he goes on to talk about his performance. He had an impressive standard in regard to the law of Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a, a particular movement within uh, Judaism known for their devotion to the scriptures. They were most committed to reading and learning and living out the law of Moses. And so it was with Paul. He knew the scriptures inside out uh, you know, before he, he was converted. <clears throat> uh, then he had an impressive sincerity. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. You can't say Paul was half hearted about anything. Not only did he love what he thought was true, he hated what he thought was wrong. He would be called an extremist today uh, or a, a fanatic. Compromise was not in his vocabulary. It doesn't really need saying, does it? But strength of conviction has nothing to do with being right. You can be sincerely wrong. And then finally, he had an impressive morality. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He had a very high opinion of himself. He was outwardly moral and upright, someone who genuinely lived by the standards of God's law. But God doesn't save people because they are good. Uh, that's not the basis upon which he makes people right with himself. If we could justify ourselves, then there would have been no reason for, for Christ to come and to die on the cross. So again, we have to ask, what's that, what's that got to do with us today? What relevance could there be? Um, and the fact is, some, sometimes people do stress their pedigree <clears throat> uh, and say with great pride things like, I'm from one of the great Catholic families of this country, you know, uh, or I've been a Methodist all my life, you know, or my parents were Baptists. Or, you know, I went to such and such a church and sat under the ministry of Reverend so-and-so. Heritage counts for nothing. Or people might draw attention to their performance. I was baptised as an infant, you know. I've been to church all my life. Um, I do good works. I give to charity. I read my Bible and say my prayers. Performance counts for nothing. If that's where I'm putting my hope, if my hope is in my heritage, my upbringing, my religious performance, uh, then it's in vain, I'm afraid to say. Paul had everything, uh, at least from a Jewish pe perspective. And, and if anyone could earn God's favour, it was Paul. 
And if he couldn't be saved, then no one could be. But he lacked one thing, didn't he? He had everything except one thing. He did not know Jesus. The one thing that mattered. And so, fortunately, there is a great but in Paul's life in verse seven. But whatever were gains to me, <clears throat> I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That one word points to what happened to him on the Damascus Road when he encountered the risen Lord. When he realised that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And of course, Paul, as a man not known for compromise, the moment he acknowledged Jesus as Lord, he was ready to completely turn his life around and to give his all. And so he goes from Saul to Paul, from persecutor to preacher, from hate filled zealot to compassionate pastor. And so as Paul looks back, he, he makes an assessment in verse seven um, and he's basically using an accountancy language. He's sort of totting everything up, the debit column, the credit column. And he realises that despite the heritage, despite the performance, the debit column was full and the credit column was still empty. None of his impressive credentials counted for anything. In fact, he saw that his life was bankrupt because he didn't have Jesus. And so now he assesses things differently in verse eight. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, <clears throat> for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So he's not saying his religious past, but anything this world offers, he now regards as rubbish. I wonder if we can say that today. Our wealth, our status, our achievements, our education, our families, our reputation. It's all garbage. No wonder Paul can say, for me to live is Christ. And joy can be found in him alone. <clears throat> in essence, what Paul has done here is discover relationship. Now, we often talk about this at RK, don't we? Um, the difference between relationship and religion. Religion is about performance and ritual. It's about uh, doing things that might earn God's favour. Whereas relationship is about knowing a person. Uh, Jesus Christ, the one in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. And if we know Jesus, then we have access to God and we have every spiritual blessing in him. No wonder Paul calls us to make him uh, the main pursuit of our lives. And this results in the confidence of, of verse nine, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This verse really sums up the heart of the gospel. It's what the whole book of Romans is all about, about how we are put into a right relationship with God through Christ because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And we receive that by faith. We believe it by faith. Um, 
How do we get in a right relationship with God? It's all because of what Jesus did on the cross, not what we do. It's a finished work. And all we have to do is believe it and receive it with faith. Faith is the open hand that receives the gift. Um, <clears throat> that's the heart of the gospel. There is no other way to uh, be in a right standing before God. It's only through Jesus. It's all about him. Well, we're going to sort of draw to a close in, in just a minute. But um, so this is Paul's testimony. This is the account of his life, B.C., before Christ and A.D., after deliverance. Um, but what are the results of this new life? What difference does it make that, that Jesus is his saviour and, and his Lord? What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven, as Paul will go on to, to talk about in verse 20? Uh, so let me just introduce this um, in these next couple of verses. Uh, here are some marks of uh, Paul's life that are true for all believers. Firstly, there's a new priority. We have a new priority and that's in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. Paul already knows him, but he says he wants to know him more. He wants a deeper, closer relationship. Certainly that must mean he wants to know more of his teaching, but knowing someone isn't knowing about them. It's knowing directly through deeper experience. So to know Christ in that way must mean to draw closer to his heart and to enjoy more intimate communion. And that's the main priority of his life, for me to live is Christ, he says in chapter 1, verse 21. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, goes the old song. There is no greater thing. So that's his new priority, to know Christ, to pursue Christ. Uh, and secondly, there's a new power in our lives, and that's the power of the resurrection. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to know that power in his life. He says in Ephesians 1.19, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. We need to understand this. The Christian life is not a self-help philosophy. It's not a set of ideas. Uh, it's the power of God. It's having your life shaped by the power of God. I'm not talking about miracles necessarily and, and dramatic things, although, of course, that can and does happen. But no, we, we just we need his power to to uh, live a godly life. We need his power to resist temptation. We need his power to lead people to Christ and to exert a spiritual influence on the world. But this is the good news the resurrection happened christ defeated sin and death and we need to know that we stand and fight from a, a position of strength and a position of victory uh, the resurrection power of christ is available to us so there's a new power um, but that doesn't mean the christian life is easy far from it because we also face a new persecution uh, again in verse 10 he talks about participation in his sufferings. Because um, knowing Christ means identifying with and sharing in his sufferings. Paul already talked about that uh, at the end of chapter one. 
Um, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Later, he would write to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I don't think that's just referring to the everyday trials of life or the chilling winds of adversity that afflict all people. We, we do live in a fallen world. And of course, in a fallen world, there is fallout from our rebellion. But what this is referring to specifically is suffering for being a Christian. Suffering because we bear the name of Christ. It means, means being made fun of, ridiculed, ostracised, misunderstood. At the moment, that's as far as it goes for us in the West. But brothers and sisters around the world are paying the ultimate price for being followers of Jesus. And I have to say, it's coming here too. And we need to be ready for that. And then there's this phrase that goes with it, becoming like him in his death. So we move from the resurrection uh, through sacrifice to death. In order to know the resurrection power, we need to be ready to die every day. And I think here's one of the sort of spiritual keys, if you like, of the Christian life. If we want to know the resurrection power. We've got to be ready to die to ourselves every day, to our own ambitions and our own agendas, because it's only when the I is crucified that Christ can be truly be crowned in our hearts. Jesus said in John 12, 24, only when a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, can it bear much fruit. So there's a new persecution and a new experience of, of suffering, which we have to get to grips with and embrace. But there's also a new prospect. And this is my final point here in verse 11. And he talks about attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and now that's it's speaking about the general resurrection of all believers at the end of time. When Christ returns, all his people will be raised up with him and will receive new bodies. Um, chapter 3, verse 21. Um, it'll come on to that next time. So this is the general resurrection. This is the glorious prospect that we share as Christians. If we share in Christ's sufferings now, we will also share in the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. This is our hope and it's based on Christ's resurrection because he was raised. Uh, we believe that we too will be raised. What did he say to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. This is our prospect. So that's where we need to leave it. Uh, our time really has gone. Um, let's remember that uh, we uh, stand on Christ's finished work. Uh, the only reason we can be uh, accepted by God is because of what Jesus has done. So we put our, our trust and our hope entirely in him and in his finished work. But not only that, we keep pursuing Christ. We seek to know him more and better. So uh, I'll finish now. Uh, and then in a few moments, um, we're going to meet together for communion. And that seems to be uh, entirely appropriate 
after what we've been thinking about today. So thanks for listening and uh, I'll catch you soon.